90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good. Uh, I graduated my first student this week. Yay. Yeah, it's very exciting. Very exciting. We'll see if I ever graduate another one, but I did one, so that's what matters, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so you got uh, you got all dressed up and put the little poofy hat on and <laughs> no no this was just the just the defense was all <laughs> i didn't actually make it to graduation it was the weekend before i was my baby was due so ah yes <laughs> yeah yeah he walked he already walked back in may we knew he'd make it so so how was the defense uh it was exciting it was really good it was weird to be the one sitting at the head of the table you know um it was very uh, quiet, and not a lot of people were there because it's the middle of summer. But um, right. it was still it was still really good. And as suspected, things go on after the door closes. Like, hey, let's just let him sweat it out a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, people actually say that. It was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Andy, you have to uh, do the secret portion of the defense, which is the snake wrestling portion, right? Right, right, exactly. Well, he, he passed that, so we were good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you? What have you been up to? Oh, I am I am still on a mobile device spirit <laughs> quest. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this has been a recurring topic over the years of the show. Of I'm trying this pencil. I'm trying this app for organizing things. So I'm on another quest. I've got what I feel like is a decent system working right now where I can access my project data from various computers, phones, iPads, that sort of thing. Well, um, I'm sure whatever you're using is going to be gone in a while anyway, so. That's software. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, it is, man. I just deleted Evernote. I was such a... I was so in love with Evernote, um, but that two-device-only two thing just did me in, so it was a sad day. Yeah, and I had begun to invest in Evernote when they did that, and so now I'm back on trying DevonThink, and I'm playing with iOS 11 beta, okay. which gives me some hope for productivity on the iPad. Okay. So we'll see what happens. We will see. <laughs> yeah <laughs> as we were just talking about before we started recording i spent a, a good deal of my afternoon in the uh apple store so that was not very fun but you know that never is it's never a cheap trip uh no no it was well we got out unscathed thank goodness i mean my son would have rather had it we bought you know two thirteen hundred dollar computers that we didn't need but i digress yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that uh, this week we're actually going to get to the long-awaited <laughs> uh, conclusion of the Plate Boundary series and talk about Transform Boundaries. So I'm not going to lie. Transform Boundaries, I mean, I think I, I kept putting this off because they're always the third one I talk about, and I basically leave it at plates sliding past each other, moving on, <laughs> right? Because these aren't really, well... they're not really <laughs> cut and dry, though. No, they're not. And really, plates move past each other, moving on was kind of the best explanation up until the <laughs> 70s. That's right. Um, <laughs> so 
<laughs> just like we said, and we've already had our plate boundaries show, you know, transfer boundaries are these plates that slide past each other, but it's a little more complicated than that. Um, the transform boundary I think that everyone thinks of is the San Andreas Fault, where you've got the North American plate and the Pacific plate moving past each other. That's fairly cut and dry. Right. So that's pretty standard, but it's also not the prevalent case <laughs> right? Exactly. of transform boundaries. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, so transform faults or transform boundaries uh, are actually also referred to as conservative boundaries. Because mm-hmm. you're not creating or destroying crust at them. Exactly. And so, like you said, these are faults that primarily move laterally or horizontally, if you will. And we characterize them as something that confuses every intergeology student <laughs> as right and left lateral. Right. Exactly. So uh, I think this confused me till I started teaching it. Um, that's not really that bad, right? Uh, right and left lateral faults. And another way you'll hear these described as is strike slip faults, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing all the time. Right. And so if you are standing, imagine, you know, you've got your, your birthday cake and you cut it in half, you stand at one end of it and somebody pushes the other end. If that other block, the one that you're not standing behind moves to the left, then it's a left lateral or sinistral fault. Mm, Correct. And if you're the other person, so not you, the other person, it also looks like the block that you're standing behind moved to the left. There you go. From either side, either plate, the motion, apparent motion is the same. Right. So that's left lateral. Dextral or right lateral would be just the opposite. And rarely are they ever purely any of these mechanisms. There's always a little bit of normal or a little bit of thrust motion going on here. I think that's true for every single thing that we ever talk about, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's <laughs> it's never cut and dry. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but the the sort of classic, the most prevalent case of these is actually mid-ocean ridge settings. See, and this I never talk about in class. Right. So <laughs> I think this is very difficult, and it's mostly because the way it's drawn, to tell you the truth, if I just talk it out, I can understand it. So hopefully this podcast medium does well to describe this. <laughs> yes, hopefully. So when you're standing on a mid-ocean ridge, as we talked about in the Divergent Boundary Show, you have upwelling material and spreading of the plate. Okay. But because of some rotation and weird strains that are going on, sometimes the mid-ocean ridge actually breaks apart. And it is offset by a transform boundary, or it appears offset by a transform boundary. Uh-huh. But if you were to go through the classic sort of the reed elastic rebound idea and look at the offset in this mid-ocean ridge, you would actually get the sense of slip wrong. (laughs) This is where it's very difficult. (laughs) And that's because it just depends on the... You've got to think about the mid-ocean ridge spreading and where you're standing on that part that's spreading. Right. So if if you have two offset spreading ridges... Mm Mm-hmm. And they're both, so let's say the one, you've got one on the top and one on the bottom, let's say, if you draw this out on a piece of paper. 
Okay. The one on the bottom is offset to the right. Well, part of it is going off to the right of the page. To the left of the ridge is going off to the left of the page. Mm-hmm. The top one, same story. What you actually end up seeing is that these transform faults remain a constant length because the ridges are spreading and giving you the opposite sense of shear along the fault. It's hard to describe in words for me, but I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a picture of it. Uh, and combined with the explanation and this picture, I think it should be apparent what we're talking about. If not, just move on to next week's show and don't listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, transforms are important, uh, but they're also, you know, we've talked about convergent plate boundaries. Okay, there are a couple types of those. We talked about divergent. Okay, yeah, there's a couple types. Uh, there are six <laughs> types of transform boundaries. Are you serious? I, I don't even think I knew that. Not at all. I knew there was these weird mid-ocean ridge things and then plates sliding past each other like the San Andreas. But are you talking about different senses of motion? Plates moving the opposite? Plates moving the same way? Well, so it's actually more classified by the behavior Oh. Of the transform fault. So transform faults can either grow in length through time, stay the same in length through time, or get shorter through time. Okay. Yep. Okay. That makes sense now. And so you're saying that's three and you said six, but uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the growing ones would be like, say you have a spreading center, so a mid-ocean ridge somewhere, and it is connected by a transform fault to the upper slab of a subduction zone okay all right so that's going to grow the uh if you have two upper slabs connected to each other have two subduction upper slabs connected to that transform boundary between those would grow yeah right but they're also constant length ones and this would be like what we were just talking about. If you're connecting two mid-ocean ridges with a transform fault, that would be a constant length example. Right, because you've got the two sides of the mid-ocean ridge acting against each other, in effect, keeping it the same length. Right, and so there are a couple other scenarios where you can have the same fight against each other. If you have the upper slab of one subduction zone connected to the lower slab of another with a transform boundary, that does the same thing. Where does that happen in nature? <laughs> so... I actually don't know a good example <laughs> of this happening. Because uh, I will say, you know, I've, I found out, which I don't think we talked about this when we talked about the plate boundaries show, um, that this transform plate boundary was discovered, if you will, by this Canadian geophysicist, uh, John Tuzo Wilson. So I, I plant this one firmly in your geophysics category, and you have the responsibility for making me understand this. <laughs> right. I, I, I would... I don't think that I, I cannot think of an example where that is strictly the case. But if you look at something like uh, transpressional regimes, so strike slip slash subducting things like in New Zealand, I would say that's a modified form of these idealized cases. Okay, the Alpine fault. That's one that my students always come up with when we talk about these transform boundaries. Right. And, uh, the most interesting to me, I think, is actually the decreasing length fault. Okay, because eventually it's going to go away, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. And so the, uh, the only scenario you can have this in is if you have two descending slabs that are connected by a transform boundary, 
both slabs are being consumed. So the transform fault between them gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until the two zones merge. Until it's just eaten. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Again, where does this happen in nature? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, but for real, are these all just like, these are the geometries that could happen, or are these all happening somewhere? I don't know if every one of them is happening somewhere. I think that, yeah, there's there's definitely, so you could have a decreasing, a constant, and a growing fault in nature. I don't think they're going to be these idealized cases. You're going to get some sort of mix. Right. Well, uh, yeah, you always But do. no, you can definitely have uh, all three of these. Um, so this kind of is really exactly why I put off writing this show. <laughs> Right, <laughs> because you know, I just wanted to talk about the rocks that happen at transform boundaries, and it turns out that's kind of weird too. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, uh, I'm I'm going to link in the show notes uh, Wilson's original papers. This is 1965, which one of the interesting things that I found about this was the discovery of these new class of faults uh, mm -hmm. was actually one of the big things that helped push forward the idea of continental drift. Yes, because they couldn't figure out how to sort of connect this mid-ocean ridge and these subducting slabs. And uh, John Tuzo Wilson was actually one of the people who was very against continental drift. And he said, you know, show me the proof. And so he figured this out. And then said, okay, there's the proof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's a kind of a cool happening in science and also a cautionary tale to say, Hey, yeah, you can be really against something, but you know, it's probably good to not just be blatantly against it and to look for this proof. Cause then you might wind up proving what you were against. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what kind of rocks do occur on transform boundaries? Okay. Well, I mean, divergent, it was mostly igneous. That was pretty easy. Convergent, we shook it up a little bit. We had igneous, metamorphic, and if you counted the stuff we were scraping off the uh, ocean floors, you also had sedimentary. Um, so at transform boundaries, I guess if I have to pin it down, you're going to get sedimentary and metamorphic rocks. That is what I would say as well. Okay, good. <laughs> and uh, so the sedimentary rocks form through a fascinating thing. So when faults move, they radiate energy, which we call earthquakes, right? Right, exactly. And Assuming that it's a, a stick-slip fast kind of motion. Right. So, you know, the average fault as someone would imagine it. Right. And the the amount of energy that's released is absolutely massive. Only about 10% of that actually goes into shaking. God, that's so scary. The The rest of it ends up getting dumped into crushing and heating. All right. Well, I mean, if you've ever been next to a fault, even a tiny one, that makes sense because takes a lot to pulverize a rock it does as anybody with a rock hammer knows <laughs> yes yes exactly <laughs> and no. that's you get this crushed up zone of gouge and this is not just on transform faults other faults have this as well but right. transform faults you have this prolonged in the same place yeah many 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 kilometers of motion that creates this really wide chewed up damage zone of Fault breccia. So a lot of your experiments when you were looking at stuff, you used baking powder for, which 
everyone might say that's silly, but I mean, you can basically turn these rocks, I mean, limestones into a flower-like consistency in this fault gouge. Oh yeah. I mean, these, the, uh, the damage zone, of course, it's gradational. So as you get further out, you've got big hunks of rock, but by the time you get to the center, it really can be just powder. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And those big hunks of rock are something that we call a brescia. So that's a type of sedimentary rock that you will, it doesn't just form at faults, and it certainly doesn't just form at transform faults. Um, but it's, you know, very ubiquitous along most faults. And these brescia mean they're classed chunks of these rocks that have been broken up, and they can be super tiny, or they could be really huge. Yes. <laughs> like, Massive. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yeah, like so big, you don't know you're on an actual piece of the brescia. Exactly. And then when you get to the actual principal slip zone or principal slip surface, uh, you're dealing with things where people are talking about nano lubrication of faults. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the sedimentary story. But the uh, the metamorphic story is also an interesting one in transform boundaries. Right. And so John just said, you know, you're doing some shaking when you're releasing all this energy when a fault moves, but you're also doing a lot of heating up. And so this is where we get the metamorphic rocks. Um, and these are very specific sort of to faults, and they're called myelinites, which is really fun to say. It is. And I should find some good pictures to link in show notes of this. Uh, But when I was looking at some exhumed faults in Italy a number of years ago, I found this really cool metamorphosed area where you could chip out S-shaped pieces (gasps) of rock uh, from the sense of shear on this fault. It was amazing. Oh, that makes me so jealous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, so think about a piece of Play-Doh, right? And you you apply shear motion to it. So, you know, you're moving your hands in opposite directions on either side of it and you can form a little S shape. And that's what you're talking about, except they're solid rocks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the whole extreme heat and pressure thing. Absolutely. And, you know, you can also get, uh, you can get melt on the slip surface of a fault. So technically you could also have an igneous as well. Yeah. That's very technical, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I would probably go ahead and just say metamorphic, but uh, pseudotaculite is the formation when you get a melt layer That's during right. shear of a fault. Um, I didn't even, I, I stopped there at myelinite, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, you can even impart some magnetization on these pseudotactylites. There's lots of people who have worked on that, which is very interesting. Oh yeah, because you get this rapid temperature rise, so you lose any magnetic signature that's in the rock. And then it cools relatively quickly because it's a very narrow band of heating. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And so you lock magnetization in as soon as you fall below the Curie temperature. Which is an awesome way to date fault movement. Oh, yeah. And we actually, uh, I wrote a model in uh, during my PhD at Penn State where I was trying to model the heat generation on my lab faults and verify it with some sensors in the setup. And actually... It worked pretty well, and it was surprising to me, even on a small-scale fault, though I was seeing you know, a few degrees temperature rise inches from the fault, mm-hmm. uh, on the actual slip surface of the fault that was microns thick, it was significant. I mean, if, if we're talking about melting rock, I mean, we're talking about 
in real life, you know, 800 degrees C or more. Yeah. So that's that's impressive. So obviously you're going to create some wicked stuff. And um, so not heating to melt, but heating almost to melt is what forms these myelinites. Uh, and just like John said, these weird S-shaped things. So you get ductile deformation at this fault boundaries. Um, and, and you see textures that you're used to in metamorphic rocks, if that's something like you normally look at. So like foliation and um, things that can give you a sense of the shear on the fault. Exactly. And there are quite a few famous, if you will, cases of the transform fault in the wild. Uh, <laughs> probably the most famous, as you said, is the San Andreas. Do you think that's true elsewhere? I mean, do you think New Zealanders think about the San Andreas Fault? Now, I mean, if you live on top of another large transformer <laughs> yeah. transpressional system, probably not. Uh, uh, I do find it funny, though, that the San Andreas for such a long time has sort of been the uh, the poster child of when we're doing research, you know, we're going to go drill through the San Andreas Fault. We're going to go do all these studies. We're going to model this on the San Andreas Fault. When really it's sort of a complicated, not prototypical case that we seem to have picked. Right. I guess it's just the prevalence of it at the surface is the thing. Like there's so many people out there that are looking at it all the time, I guess. I don't I don't know. I mean, there's nothing much to say about it anymore since the movie came out and we know everything about it, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's got a long history of impacting civilization. Uh, yeah, I would highly recommend the book Earthquake Storms. It's uh, covers a lot of history of earthquake science, namely dealing with the San Andreas Fault. Uh, some really interesting studies: people trying to characterize velocity structures by setting off dynamite and looking for vibrations in buckets of mercury. Wow! All kinds of interesting stuff in there. <laughs> that sounds um, awesome. <laughs> but that is definitely not the only one. So we can go to New Zealand and look at the Alpine Fault. Uh, there's the Dead Sea Transform. Mm-hmm. And There's, that one, that one okay. I didn't really know a lot about, but I thought that was cool that the, you know, the Arabian plate and the Sinai Israeli plate, they're shifting past each other, but they're both moving the same direction, just not right. the same. Yeah, not the same speed. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's a number of these in addition to all of the mid-ocean ridge offsets, but you also get these, uh, these fracture zones that are areas that were at one time active, mid-ocean ridge transform uh, segmentation, but now are not active any longer. So there's things like the uh, the Charlie Gibbs fracture zone, the Mendocino fracture zone, the Romanche, uh, and a lot of research happens on those still in terms of trying to understand some of the fundamentals about how mid-ocean ridges, fracture zones, and those pieces of plate tectonics work. Oh, yeah, exactly. Just like when we talked about the uh, divergent boundaries, you know, the the southern Oklahoma Lockagen, which we'll have a show about coming up. Um, it's a failed rift, so it's not happening anymore, but it's the perfect sort of natural laboratory to study them as well. Yes. And so I've got a question for you about transform boundaries. I probably can't answer it, but go ahead. <laughs> This is a fun fault question in terms of material properties and continuity. Okay. Uh, does a transform fault have to be offset the same amount along its entire length? Net, so geologic time. 
I mean, my first instinct is to say yes, but my secondary instinct is you wouldn't ask me that question if the answer was yes. <laughs> I, w- I would go with your secondary instinct okay, on that exactly, one. Okay, exactly, yes. So, yeah, I'm, uh, a, I'm a really good test taker. I just want people to know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so transform how, faults hap- have ends that are bounded by some other kind of boundary. Right. It just has to, or else it'd just be through the whole earth (laughs) right right so you know you go up and you hit the the subduction zone somewhere or you connect two mid-ocean ridges those are definite ends to the transform those do have pretty much equal deformation right along their length okay but you can have a boundary that does not intersect anything okay and so that's called a transcurrent fault I have never heard this. <laughs> and well, it's a, it's a distinction that's not commonly made, I would say. Well, it, uh, does it commonly happen? They do occur. Okay. So, uh, if you've got if you've got shear in a material internal to the material. Okay. You can actually have if you make a graph of displacement versus distance along the fault, mm-hmm. it would be peaked in the center. And then it would taper to zero at the ends. Wow. Wow. Just because of discontinuity in the in the rocks, apparently. Right. So, I mean, think about this like you've got a piece of metal and you've got some kind of imperfection in it. And you get a shear that doesn't go end to end, boundary to boundary of the metal. Right, right. So you can have these. They... Again, they're not commonly distinguished between because they look like a transform. It's just that they don't have bounded ends. Yeah, exactly. And this is where you'd have to do some very careful um, careful study of what's happening in the middle versus the ends, not just make that overall assumption. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, I learned something. How about that? I learned something about rocks from a geophysicist. I didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the fact that you can have faults that die out with no real junction with anything is fascinating to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. you we focus so much on the this is a block, this is a block, but no blocks like that sort of exist by themselves in space, you know. No, and I mean, so a transform fault can be a tectonic boundary; it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a transcurrent fault cannot be, by definition. Exactly. Yeah. So. Anyway, that is, that's the confusing world of transform <laughs> fault in a nutshell, without looking at any real life examples, doing like a good geophysicist and talking about the geometric end members. Exactly. <laughs> hey, I said real things, fault breccia, myelonites, those are for real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so as you'll see, this is why we put this one off for so long. <laughs> yeah. And it is hard to explain. I do know some folks that work on specifically areas like the Alpine Fault or like the Charlie Gibbs Fracture Zone. Uh, so I think this would be an interesting topic to revisit with experts on these areas to tell us some about what we're still trying to suss out. Uh, yes, absolutely. The Alpine Fault is a huge area of um, research. I mean, especially because they keep having really big earthquakes on it. So that always spurs a lot of public interest and unfortunately funding as well, because it takes 
takes a disaster to bring attention to some of these things that need to be studied. Yeah, and the Alpine Fault itself is a, I mean, it's been drilled now, uh, mm-hmm. so we have samples of it. Yep. It's a yep. weird tectonic regime. Yeah. Yes, it really is. That's very interesting, too, to think about the San Andreas Fault not being sort of a poster child for a transform fault, but yet that's the one that we always, always talk about. Well, yeah, it's got this weird transition to subduction on the northern end. And yeah, so it's it's an interesting case that seems to somehow have become the stereotypical transform fault uh, when it really seems to be sort of a special outlier in so many areas. It's a special little snowflake fault. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many how many faults do you have where there's a section that creeps and a section that has earthquakes and there's a section that sometimes creeps except when it has earthquakes and <laughs> all uh, in a relatively small geographic area. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like another five shows to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before this gets too long, being one of our last summer shorts, believe it or not, school's about ready to start again. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I think we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> Man, this this new cowbell just brings so much stability to the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of stability. <laughs> oh, that yeah. was... Yeah, so this, this paper actually comes to us from listener Mark. And <laughs> this is clearly what happens when a mathematician gets frustrated at lunch. (laughs) I love this. So this is from A. Martin, and it is on the stability of four-legged tables. For real. (laughs) And it's from CERN. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, the real scientist. (laughs) Right. And so the introduction, I'm just going to read the the first sentence or two here. Uh, Many people eating lunch or drinking coffee on the terrace of the CERN cafeteria have had the following problem. The table is often not in a stable equilibrium position. It rests on three feet, and with very little energy, it can be made to wobble so that part of your coffee is spilled, at best, onto the saucer, or at worst, onto the table. Why is this? (laughs) I love it, because you know what I do as an ex-waitress? I get a sugar packet, and I stick it under that fourth leg, and then it's all solved. Well, and you know what? Actually, turns out you didn't have to do that. Yeah, uh huh. I should have read this mathematical proof and rotated the table. <laughs> yes. Uh. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so basically, that is what A. Martin has done: is that he sat down and got so frustrated about this, um, he tried to come up with a mathematical solution to this problem. Right? On a if a four-legged square table is on a slope less than fifteen degrees, you can always rotate it to where all four legs are on the ground. Right. And if you think about it, it sort of makes sense. It does. It does, yes. Um But there are some special conditions here that we'll get to. Uh and this is where I check out because yeah, this is confusing. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was interesting that he's thought about this problem before and had not published it, gave a talk slash conference paper on it. Mm -hmm. And somebody else actually looked at this problem as well and said, well, actually, you can increase the slope from 14.47 degrees to 35.26, given certain roughness conditions and so on. Which I thought was impressive. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But the catch is the idea that the feet of the table lie on a circle. Okay. 
I mean, this so, kind of makes sense, though. Right. So if you have some arbitrarily rough surface, and let's say you approximate it by a sphere, if the feet of the table do lie on a circle, then you'll be able to find an equilibrium position on top of that sphere. Right. Exactly. Because there's uh, four points where that's going to intersect. Right. And he does some things in here to simplify the mathematics, even though they're still not horribly simple. No. <laughs> uh, which is, it's always fun to see how a problem that looks innocent at first turns into a horrible calculus pretty quickly. It was. Uh, like, I was I was doing really well until, um, oh, where was it? Until he got onto something ridiculous and whipped out some whipped out a bunch of orthogonal plane oh polar coordinates that's where he that's where i i checked out uh polar coordinates are fun but they're, they're not uh, bad but you know or yeah. spherical coordinates oh uh, man <laughs> so anyway he does two forms of proof in here one is the approximate proof okay which is sort of the Imagine you've got a table that has four feet and one of them is not touching the ground. And we're going to do the extreme case of let's rotate this 90 degrees so that a different leg is in the air. Mm-hmm. And then through some pretty simple mental gymnastics, we're going to say that at some point between those two positions where let's say leg four is in the air and then leg three is in the air, there is a case where leg three and four are both not in the air. Right. Um, of course, making some assumptions about the table's tall enough, the legs are small, so on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and that they pass underneath the surface occasionally as well. Well, so that's for the thought experiment. Yes. Uh, you can start with the leg underneath the surface and you get the same solution. I, at first I thought, well, that's... A silly thing to point out, but then mm-hmm. I thought, well, what if you had a table outside on mushy ground? Oh, well, there you go. Granted, that violates a lot of the things in here because we're assuming non-elastic legs, non-elastic floors. Yeah, um, and if it's mushy enough, it's probably not wobbling, but that's just... <laughs> yeah. But again, for, you know, literally for a, a spherical roughness surface... Um, and then he goes through the the proof that he titles, I like, uh, Section 3, a hopefully rigorous proof. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was, he, he is very amusing about <laughs> about these proofs, that's for sure. Yes, uh, much lighter than... <laughs> yes. <laughs> than uh, many mathematicians, I would say. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, he goes through how he does this, uh, the math makes for very boring radio, but shows that there is a unique position uh, where you can have this stable equilibrium. Then in the concluding remarks, he goes on to try to extend this to non-square tables. So how does that work out? Well, so if your four feet are not on a circle, uh, then it doesn't seem like it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if your four feet are on a circle for any sufficiently smooth surface, you should be able to find an equilibrium position. Uh, then he points out that the CERN conference rooms 
have these half hexagon tables. Do you have these at OU? Um, I was trying to think, and we do. Um, they're smaller, especially in these new classrooms where we talk about these active learning classrooms. There's a couple of them that have these weird half hexagon tables. Yeah, and so we had a few of these in some rooms at Penn State. I thought they were horrible. I did too, and still do, uh, yes. <laughs> and to prove that they are more horrible, uh, you can make convenient arrangements, as he points out, only on flat ground. <laughs> um, I guess I'm going to use this for as a, as a we do not need to buy these tables because there's something in the, you know, in our mind where we have to have a person on each side of the table. Oh. And these half hexagon tables are the worst. Yeah. Yeah, so here is uh, what I would consider a pretty rigorous analysis of a frustration at lunch. Yes. (laughs) I love how many papers come out of this weird stuff. It's the best. Yeah, and I will say when I encounter a rocky table, uh, next time I'm not going to try to pop prop it up. I am going to say, is this restaurant floor sufficiently flat? Yes, and then start rotating it. Uh, and then get kicked out when you whip out this paper to shoot prove what you're doing. <laughs> I I would doubt that. Make it a few funny looks, but yeah, it's in the name of science. <laughs> and everyone's okay with that. Yes. So <laughs> thanks, Mark, for sending this in. This is a paper that I never would have thought to search for, write, or read. Nope. Uh-huh. It was really good. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So if you have done an analysis of how far you need to turn your lunch table to get it to be stable, uh, you can send those calculations, videos, proofs, uh, any lemmas that you found useful, etc. into us or suggestions for your own fun paper or show topic. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Right. Keep them coming, everybody. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can always send us some links on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And as always, we're in the swung.rocks on the don't panic channel and that is our slack chat room where we hang out and there's a lot of good science going on there and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies